Fintech is supposed to be about financial education, empowerment and literacy. But I think we can all agree that there's often more talk than action, or even worse, hypocrisy. That's because when it comes to education, it can be a little unclear what that really means. Does it mean YouTube videos, blog posts, webinars, books? The good news is there are some fintech companies that are taking the financial education challenge head on. They're not just publishing a few blog posts about budgeting, but instead are designing curriculums, hosting virtual events and building a community. One of those companies is public.com, a social trading app where members can invest in stocks and also share ideas within a community of investors. The public team understood right from the beginning that the number one barrier to investing is psychological. And therefore, the best way to overcome this is with a community. We've talked about community before on the podcast, specifically about how to build a community through a Slack group. But public.com has taken a different approach and made community literally part of the product. Today, I'm chatting with Katie Perry, VP of Marketing at public.com. We walk through three different marketing plays at Public, their recent partnership with the NCAA, how they're focusing on financial literacy and community, as well as their recent drops, which are individual campaigns designed to make a statement about who they are. I found this chat with KT to be very insightful and relevant, especially for B2C fintech companies that are targeting mass market customers. So if that's you, I think you'll especially enjoy this episode. You're listening to Market Like a Fintech, a podcast where I explore how fintech marketers are using marketing to help fintech companies fulfill their mission of democratizing finance. I am your host, Araminta Robertson, partner at the Fintech Marketing Hub. And on the topic of community, we've just launched our own Slack group for fintech marketers. That's right, a Slack community where you can meet other fintech marketers and founders, engage in group discussions and chat about upcoming podcast episodes. You can join now at fintechmarketinghub.com forward slash Slack. Without further ado, let's hear from Katie. Katie, my first question for you is, what has been the largest impact on your career so far? The largest impact of my career, I think, was something that happened out of luck. I... I graduated in 2008 in the the recession. Uh, I had a lot of trouble finding a job and I I landed at a company kind of out of desperation frankly and it ended up being the best possible first job I could ever have. I met my mentor there. The company was in a it was a marketing agency and they were one of the first agencies to build like a formal social practice. And so I was there to experience the growth of the company from about a hundred people to a thousand. And I just, I, most of my skills that I've retained just in just work relationships, collaboration, even outside of marketing, I was able to glean from that team. And looking back and having other work experiences after that, I realized just how, how important it was and just how, how uh, significant it was to have that experience when I was so young early in my career. I didn't, you know, looking back, I, I didn't really think of it that way. But I think there's a lot of like early things that happen in your career that shape and define you. And that like five years I was at that company really kind of gave me a great foundation to build from. And so when I talk to young people now, 
you know, obviously, you know, you're looking for a job out of school and you it's it's almost as much about you liking the opportunity as like liking the team, respecting the leadership and like you're almost interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. I didn't have that mindset because it was it was a very tough job market. But I think about that a lot and just how important that was when I was so much earlier in my career. So it seems that it's like mentorship, right? Having the right mentors is really important. It's it's also very difficult to find, wouldn't you say? How how do you go about finding mentors in a in today's market? I think some people think of finding a mentor as this like great search for the one. Mm. And what I've come to realize over time is that you can really find mentorship opportunities in a lot of places. You know, not everyone is going to have one mentor that is the person. I have a lot of peers that I see as mentors. So I think there's a lot you can learn from a lot of different people from different backgrounds. And sometimes I think we kind of put too much pressure on ourselves to like find a mentor. Rather, kind of the approach I would advocate for is being open to mentorship opportunities. And it may be a sustained thing or it may be like a moment in time, but just being open to learning from others and not just those more senior than you, but peers. And I will say also people more junior than you. I learn from more junior people at, at our company all the time because they're coming from a different generation. They have different experiences. And so just being curious and being open to learning opportunities will create that mentorship environment that I think, you know, is, is almost better because you're getting a more diverse mix of of people infused into how you think about things. Yeah, I like what you're saying, like having mentors for different areas of your life. So often a lot of the people that I follow online that I really respect are, they have like a personal coach mentor, a mindfulness mentor, a writing mentor, a <laughs> business mentor. And like, you just really want to have like a team of people who are kind of there for you, guiding, guiding you in every aspect of your life. That'd be the dream. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big fan just as a marketer of getting insight and inspiration from everywhere. I was yeah. never the kind of person that would read like a marketing blog and and feel like mm. super inspired. So I, I always get ideas. I'll get an idea from a small business or a song or a show or pieces of culture, people in my life. And so I think some of it with being a marketer now, a lot of it is being culturally relevant. It's just being open open to things and experiences and ideas outside of your little lane, especially, you know, living in New York, our, our app at public.com, we serve a broad audience of people. I fully understand that like my life in New York is not representative of most people. And so just expanding kind of how you think about things, the people you connect to, I think makes a big difference there. That's actually really important because I used to be that person reading marketing books because I thought I have to like stay up to date with everything. And then I heard a really good piece of advice on a podcast, which was like, ditch the marketing books. Like (laughs) you want to be reading other stuff as well. I mean, some of them are very important and very good, but that's what's so fascinating about this industry is that you don't actually, often you don't even need a degree and often you don't even need, often the, the youngest people, the ones with the least experience will bring the most interesting ideas and might even succeed the most. That's what's so interesting about it because you never really know was going to work sometimes. And that's why we have these podcasts and we have these discussions because it's like, it's so subjective that we're constantly trying to find out if the marketing book doesn't know, then who does? And you, you don't know, really. You just know by trying a lot of different things, right? I completely agree. I think there's definitely principles and there's great thought leaders. 
But one thing I realized with marketing is like, I never truly see myself as a marketing expert because Mm -hmm. I think just the nature of marketing is changing so much that I think more important than being an expert is being curious and open and flexible. And it's just, by the time you write and publish a book on something, like everything is changed. Mm -hmm. Like TikTok didn't really exist, what, two years ago? So, I mean, it's, I think it's more about being kind of like a student of marketing and like a lifelong student versus being, you know, a guru who knows everything. Because the reality is nobody knows everything about marketing at any point in time because it's changing. It's changing so quickly. Well, on the point of being a student and of trying new things, with the podcast, we wanted to try a different kind of structure where we kind of focus on three specific uh, marketing plays with public.com. So I'm really excited to to try this out because we, we receive feedback and I'm trying new things, you know, part of marketing, right? So our first play today, which I'm really excited to, to chat with you about, is your public.com's partnership with the NCAA through a program that you're calling the One Team. I really love it. But before, I think you will describe it better than I will. So please, please say a little bit about this, kind of what you're doing here with the NCAA and what that entails. Sure. The So the NCAA, for those not in the US, is the collegiate sort of association of represents student athletes in the schools that they they play sports at. And the historical context is that College sports is a big business in the U.S. Some of these student athletes are absolute all-star celebrities, huge followings. They're many times are the, the pull for ticket sales, for merch sales, jersey sales. And there's been this long dialogue about how student athletes never really got their fair cut of the profits that they were bringing in for these schools and, and, and the partners of the schools. And there's been a lot of debate over time. And what happened earlier this year in about in July, I believe, is they finally formalized what is called the NIL program, which stands for name, image and likeness. And essentially what that does is give student athletes the agency to monetize their own name, image and likeness, which is really interesting if you think about it, because a lot of these student athletes will be earning money, material money for the first time, whether it's see some million dollar deals. You see some might be making a couple hundred dollars a month, which as a student, we can all, and we can all think back and realize that that's actually significant to someone that age. So we saw an interesting opportunity there as they were becoming entrepreneurs, earning money earlier on to provide financial literacy support in a community around that experience. We have a lot of amazing pro-athlete entrepreneurs and other experts sort of in our family at public involved in the company. So what we're essentially doing is building this community for any student athlete who wants to join, we'll give them $100 to start a portfolio in public and sort of start their investing journey there, but also access to curriculum and sessions with people they admire, people that know and respect. And it could be on a range of topics from, you know, obviously investing 101 is pretty ripe for our world, but also things like how to negotiate an agreement, how to build a personal brand online, tips for just professionally collaborating. A lot of times this this is going to be like the experience for a lot of them. And so that's kind of the genesis of why why we built it. We just felt like we could play a valuable role on journey for, for many of these athletes. When you say sessions, are they some like webinars or in-person classes? What does, what does that look like? Sure, they'll be uh, digital or not digital. They will be online online sessions that we set up and program. So 
currently we're in sort of the recruitment phase of the process. And once we have, you know, a critical mass of students in there, we're going to begin rolling out sort of monthly or even bi-monthly every couple of weeks, free and open Zoom sessions that can be interactive and give them access to some of these experts. And I'm curious because I remember trying to write personal finance stuff for college students. And like, the thing is that college students are often, you know, they, their priorities are often elsewhere, you know, friends, college and all that. How, how are you going to get them to actually join those sessions and commit to them? Do you have a strategy? One or? great change I've seen with Gen Z, even versus my generation millennials, is just how ingrained business is into their everyday mm. lives more so yeah. than my generation. So for an example, we've done partnerships in the past with huge college communities of women students, college students who are really interested in entrepreneurship and investing as a college student. That just wasn't really a thing. I was in school, there was sort of these niche groups on campus, maybe there was a finance club. But I think a lot of that has to do with sort of the mainstreamification of some of these concepts. You know, they're they're seeing some of their favorite YouTubers get equity deals with startups. They're mm-hmm. seeing people like Rihanna, who, you know, my entire like life was an artist and she's now a billionaire because she built this empire. And I think that's amazing to see that that's just organically a part of culture. I think there's more of a draw to this kind of thing for young people these days because it's just everywhere around them. It's more accessible and it's interesting. So even in our, you know, our form to sign up, we ask kind of why they're interested. And a lot of them are saying, I want to, I want to empower myself with financial literacy. I want to build these tools early on. They're really interested. And I think the sports world is a great place to look for people who are taking real leadership roles in these topics. We just started a partnership with Bobby Wagner, who is one of the best players in the NFL, but he's also asked you know, about financial literacy and investing. He actually, in in his earlier seasons, he took an internship at Microsoft as he was playing professional football because he was oh. so interested in learning. And so there's just a lot of great role models there that I think is sparking this interest. Yeah, there's, there's two things there that I'm finding really interesting. First of all, what you're saying about college students that are who are much more interested. And I'd be curious to hear if that's the case elsewhere in the world, like in Europe also. And I'm I'm thinking it is because it is a little bit, well, maybe in the Western world, I'm not sure about Asia, for example. But I think that's really interesting. And to me, that's kind of saying that fintech companies nowadays, you know, maybe targeting college students is a good idea. And we used to think that college or university is just you know, it's not worth targeting them because they don't have a lot of money and they're not interested, but maybe that's not true anymore. And the second thing that I think is really interesting is what you said about sports, is that people who excel at sports are usually people who are quite ambitious and and maybe wanting to improve themselves or into personal development. And that's also a very interesting kind of demo- demographic to target because they'll automatically be interested in financial literacy. It's pretty cool. Totally. And most of these student athletes, the reality is they're going to go pro in something that's not their sport and they understand that. And so I think the unique opportunity through the NIL change is that they're going to get this amazing sort of career experience, entrepreneurship experience before they even graduate. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Building your own brand and, you know, having discussions with with brands as a 19-year-old student and maybe you play a sport, there is no pro option or you do something else, that experience is incredibly valuable. 
And yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of interesting intersections going on between sports and business right now. It's kind of echoing a little bit the creator economy, which is also something we'll touch on in a bit. But what does success look like? Like, what is your eventual objective with this partnership? Where do you see yourself going in like a year with these college students? This is year one. We obviously want to get it off the ground and grow it. I think over time, would love that for this to be a sustained evergreen program. One of the interesting things in building this was just how interested and passionate the advisors that we signed on were to participate. So people who, one example is Paul Rabel. He just retired from the sport of lacrosse, but he actually built a professional lacrosse league in the U.S. with his brother and is the CMO there. So just the the kind of enthusiasm from the the advisors and the mentors was huge. And I think this is really something that we can build and sustain over time as the NIL matures and grows. I think this is kind of the Wild West right now. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people looking for resources. And so we really want to like plant a flag and create this community early and build a, a true network around this that adds value to these students as they as they kind of navigate this journey. I think what I really like about this kind of approach or the strategy is that you are really fulfilling public public.com's mission here, which is to spread financial literacy. And often college students are, you know, they're they're still so early in their kind of careers and lives that they haven't made financial catastrophic mistakes yet. Not yet, although debt is one of them, but you know, that like that can be discussed. And so you're kind of getting in there before, right? Which I think is really, really like a really cool way of how you're spreading that that, that mission of of public.com. And I, that kind of brings me on to the second strategy or second play that I wanted to talk about, which is how at public.com you're really focusing on financial literacy and community. And the thing is that a lot of fintech companies talk about financial literacy and financial inclusion, but I feel like at public.com you're actually implementing it. And this is why I find this really cool and very interesting. Um, and it's, yeah, so, so too many fintechs are kind of falling into that trap of kind of greenwashing financial literacy. I'm not sure if, if there's a word for that. How, how do you, yeah, so talk to me about this play a little bit, but also how you're making sure that that's always at the forefront and that you're actually implementing financial inclusion. I know a lot of questions in there, but yeah, go ahead. As a marketer, I, I it's always important to me that whatever I'm marketing or promoting, I actually believe in and feel like that it's a reality in the business. I think one trend you've seen in marketing with you know the rise of social media and just consumers being more in tune with how marketing works is that they can really sniff out inauthenticity pretty easily. And part of the reason I joined public was I felt like the product actually served the mission, that the integrity, and that the business was really being all levels around the mission. And it was just a marketing tagline. That's, you know, I've been in my career over a decade and I've worked at companies where I, the product, I was like, you know, I don't, I don't really believe in this product. And the reality is, as a marketer, that's really hard. There's a lot of mm. cognitive dissonance that happens there when you're hyping something up that you actually are questioning or don't believe in yourself. And so that's that was why I joined public. I don't have a background in financial services. You know, I'm I would say I'm a amateur investor. I'm learning, you know, alongside our members. But that was the pull for me. 
And I think for us is we really believe that our brand comes to life through every single aspect of our business. It's not just a marketing function. So our brand is our incredible customer support team that's applying empathy when talking to people about issues they might be having. Our community team who's in the app engaging with our members directly. Even our, you know, our product, making sure it's functioning correctly and having features in there that are tying to education and responsible investing. Every single piece of what we do is kind of laddering up. And so for marketing, I kind of, it's like one of those relay races where sometimes I feel like I get the baton last and I just go get to talk mm-hmm. about and evangelize the things that are true about our business. And I think that's that's really important. And, you know, as I've gone in my career, I've I've told myself, I, I don't think I could work at a company where I didn't believe that that brand and that mission was coming to life throughout every single thing we were doing. Yeah, for sure. That that makes sense. And would you so if we dive into more of the specifics of how you try to spread financial literacy at uh, public.com, there's a few things you do like AMAs with the company CEOs and you also do the public live through the app, which I really like. What is your what is your favorite feature and what are some other things that you're doing to really spread financial education? Yeah, the genesis of adding the social features to public was really all about education. You know, there's there's other investing apps that have social features, but they're more focused on the ability to copy someone's portfolio or follow a trade or see who's performing the best. Strategically, from the beginning, we wanted to set a different kind of tone and use social in a very different way. And that was to unlock more ways of thinking between investing. And I think one really interesting thing about investing is that the more diverse, the more diversity in the viewpoints you surround yourself with the more informed you're going to be. There's so many sectors, there's so many nuances. And what new investors see and is an empowering moment is that you have lived in professional experiences that you can bring to the table as an investor. So somebody who had experience buying Pinterest ads and understands the Pinterest ads product will have something really valuable to say about that business that somebody who's working in healthcare may not have. And so having this kind of diversity of thought in the community of people coming from different places and setting the tone of it being social as a means to share ideas and collaborate, I think that was really key. And that was sort of the starting point. And since then, we've started building some features that are designed to give give people content in ways beyond just, you know, the typical blog post for FAQ articles. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have those. I think those are kind of you know, the baseline, but things like Public Live, which you mentioned, the daily audio shows, we we have journalists who are running them. They're credible, but they're also talking about these topics in accessible ways. I think for, for long-term investors and most of our community, 90% are long-term, you know, they, they might not want to turn on a business news network and see, you know, the intraday movements of a stock, but they might want to hear a talk about a specific sector they're interested in or have somebody break down the jobs report. So those have been really amazing. We see incredible reception from the community in those. We just had one yesterday. It had like over a thousand people in there at like 2 p.m. on a Wednesday. And then the other thing you brought up was the town halls. And this is essentially an opportunity for people to ask questions directly of the people behind the companies they might be interested in investing in. And, you know, typically the only people we get to ask questions of these of these leaders are analysts or institutional investors. And you hear that in the earnings calls. 
I, I love kind of following these town halls because you see that retail investors care about different things. We have people asking initiatives at companies. We have people asking about sort of their, how they hiring people. It's, it's kind of a more robust and uh, diverse conversation. And you see that a lot of people want to kind of unpack and feel good about the companies that they might be in, interested in. So lining that up alongside, you know, assessing their financial health and determining if they think, you know, that's something they believe in. They also want to feel good about that business and, and feel inspired by it. So those have been two amazing things we've built. We're always working on on new things in the app. Um, another one that we did early on was safety labels. So we actually label when a stock might be more volatile than others, according to kind of the SEC's guidelines around that. Again, I think it's all about context and not paternalism. We want to have people make their own decisions. No two investors are the same, but context in the moment in the app they're investing is really critical for kind of this next wave of investors. I want to dive a little bit deeper into the community because the more I talk to fintech marketers, the more this word comes up, right? And for some, it might seem like a buzzword, but I really, I understand it. I understand how it's becoming more and more important. And also it's it's the future, really. More and more we're relying on data, which is kind of community, right? And the more and more we're looking to Facebook groups, to Reddit, to to Discords for answers. And in a really cool way at public.com, you've kind of converted your community into the product. A lot of people come to public.com to, to see what others have to say. I'd love to hear how you got started with that. How did you get people together and start, you know, encouraging engagement and building traction? Yeah, the, the insight around community is that, you know, as the evolution of sort of retail investing has always been centered on the idea of kind of more of an economic dem democratization. So the ability to buy small slices of shares, so that's called fractional investing or zero commissions. And those are all amazing because they allow people to start earlier and start smaller and kind of build their learning as they grow. The opportunity we saw at public was to break down a second barrier, which keeps a lot of people out. And that's a psychological barrier to entry. You know, people have trepidation about the stock market. If you look at yep. what's been represented in culture over the past few decades, you know, you have Wolf of Wall Street, those like these Wall Street movies. It's very like intimidating, inaccessible, and for a lot of people, just not appealing culture to be around. And so we, we've created this community that has really set a different tone and culture around the stock market where people feel comfortable, they feel welcome, and they're not intimidated. And I think the psychological piece is, is kind of played down a little. It's, it's a big thing for a lot of people. If you talk to someone who has the means to invest and ask why they're not, they'll say, I, I don't know what I'm doing, or I, I, I yep. hire yep. someone else to do this, or you know, and, and so it's that's what's blocking them. And the community is really a beautiful place where you have people supporting each other. One hashtag that's super popular in our community is my first investment. And when someone makes a new investment, you see immediately people welcoming them, you know, wow. here, if you have any questions, like that moment is huge because that first investment is scary for a lot of people. Yep. And so that's kind of the beauty. Bill, it's just creating this different culture that people people find really appealing if that kind of traditional, stereotypical Wall Street culture isn't for them. 
I really like that. And I want to touch on something I heard you say in an interview with Lamphouse Films. You mentioned that your co-CEO intentionally didn't want to target stock market traders. And basically, he the quote is, as a growing company, the customers you acquire become who you are, which I find really interesting. Because then it's, it's if you only target stock market traders, it's harder to broaden and you aren't actually pushing that psychological barrier. I wanted to say, like, obviously that takes guts, right? Because you're targeting kind of a new market. And you've said it yourself that 90% of your users are first-time investors. And like, that's like, also, that's why probably the hashtag is like so popular. My question is, how, how do you know you're targeting the right people? And how do you know that it's working? I think something interesting in that, in that insight that was shared early on, even when I joined, was really, really, I thought it was brilliant and, and spot on. Yeah. I think a lot of people kind of under underestimate People who are outside of this world, I would say one early kind of learning I had even, you know, we did, we do a lot and we did a lot at the beginning, especially with women's communities, for example. Mm -hmm. People assume that if someone's not doing it, that they're not interested and they can't. I found that like, and talking to like literally hundreds of people, not the case. People who aren't doing it currently are interested. And it's kind of about the unlock of getting them to understand that participating and investing doesn't mean you're going to be sitting there talking about charts all day or getting into sort of this, this very kind of inside baseball, the jargon. It's when, when people understand that this is about finding businesses and trends that you believe in and companies that align with your values, it's immediately more interesting. It's immediately more accessible. You know, there's hundreds, if not thousands of products and interact with every single day. And when people can kind of see that connection between investing and their life, that is when they really get excited and interested. And so I think, you know, it's a missed opportunity for for financial institutions to ignore people. It is a little more work, right? Because they're not that primed audience that's like, Mm. yes, I'm ready to invest. So there's a little bit of kind of approach where the way you're messaging, having an educational component, like we did a lot of like, investing 101 workshops with communities. And I didn't go in there and just pull up a demo of our app. I started with like, here's how to think about this. Here are the main concepts. And once that that's, that piece is kind of done, I saw incredible interest. Like we, we saw amazing interest from these communities. And they're some of our best members are our first time investors because they're approaching it out of a place of curiosity. They are collaborative. They're open to ideas. And so I think, I think it's, you know, it's not just like we're doing the right thing. It's, it's the right thing for our business. It's what it's fulfilling our mission. And there is a growth opportunity there. That's real. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, this is what I think is, is also really effective about this is that the community in a way it's a product, but it's also once again, fulfilling that initial mission of FidTech, which is, or of public.com, which is to democratize finance. And I like how you're taking on that responsibility to educate. In a way, you're becoming a category leader, right? And in a way, you're also kind of paving, you're paving the path for, for you know, future social investing or just the, the normal average person who wants to invest. So yeah, it does take guts, but I guess the reward is a lot higher. And it, it is that you're kind of setting the standard and you're able to set the tone and you're also able to, you have a bit more control of, of how to do that, I guess, in a way. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, I agree. I think I think major props to our community team, but like I think we are creating a paradigm for community. So you know, going back to my first job at the social agency, community managers used to be the people who posted on Twitter, or and yeah. the metrics yeah. around that yeah. were like followers. I don't really think that's community the way we see it or how it even is anymore. We're building sort of a new model. Our community team is closely integrated with our customer support team, with our product team. They're a strategic pillar in the business. They're not just, you know, sending out swag and, you know, the the surface level things. It's it's fundamental. Like you said, it's part of the product and part of what we're offering. And so it, it's it's challenging. It's a different paradigm we're building. We always say when we post community roles, it's it looks very different than community roles at other places. And you're seeing this kind of redefinition of community emerge. Yeah. And I think our team is really doing amazing work to kind of create that new model. And it's the model that's right for us. I don't think every company will have the same model, yeah. but I really give credit to them for like advancing that entire practice forward because it is really important and it is really impactful on the business to have that layer. Yes, I think that. What you're saying is is like, you know, fintech companies who know that community is important and that want to start maybe creating a community need to take into account that it looks a little bit different now. It's not just social media. Maybe it's, it's not even Reddit and it's maybe not even like Facebook groups. It's more than that. It's actually, you know, turning your product, your app into a community. And that serves as a huge moat also because... Public, I mean, in order to, you, you said it in the interview, when you get your friends on to public.com, then it's a lot more fun. And it's kind of this relay marketing strategy where a bit like what Dropbox and what WhatsApp did, you know, in order to use it, you want, you need other people to use it. And that kind of works in a virality. Actually, this perfectly leads on to the third play that I wanted to talk about, which is your drops, uh, poly.com drops. So I thought which is uh, really exciting, really fun. You obviously have a lot of fun with them. <laughs> My favorite one is definitely the Michael Bolton uh, song for for anyone who's listening. It's, it's a song where Michael Bolton basically convinces you to break up with your brokerage through a song. And it's, yeah, that must have been so amazing. So yeah, what, what has been your your favorite drop? And what what was the thing? Who who had the idea to start those? Like, how did you get those, the idea to get start those. Yeah, Michael Bolton was amazing. I'll kind of loop back to that. I think one one thing that's cool is actually one of our co-CEOs used to be a creative director at one of the most like innovative kind of edgiest creative agencies and so mm-hmm. he kind of has that mind of of understanding the power that um you know, having that creative brand can be a differentiator and can help you stand out and we have a lot of outsiders, I'd say, on our marketing team. Outsiders meaning people who are not did not do fintech marketing before this, not even in professional services. I had a little bit of imposter syndrome when I started because I was like, oh, I haven't, I haven't been in this space. But mm-hmm. over time, I think it's a huge advantage because the way we're looking at these campaigns and these drops is so different than you would expect from someone in our space because we're coming from it from a different angle. And so the drops concept really kind of is, it stems from our, our co-CEO who kind of has that sort of creative mind. And we have a lot of people on the marketing team who are just super creative and we're always sort of collaborating on, on new ideas there. The purpose of those is to have, you know, obviously we're a financial services product, the trust and the credibility, the education, that's kind of the most important thing. But we also like to have fun and we bring some humanity into it. I think the Michael Bolton thing was a good example. It was 
there was a point in time when a lot of people were disgruntled with their investing app. It was around Valentine's Day. So it was a parody mm-hmm. song with Michael Bolton, classic 80s love song uh, guy singing you through how to break up with your brokerage. There was even a message at the end if you if you transferred your portfolio where he was kind of giving you like the pump up speech your fr- best friend would give you after a breakup. So that was a lot of fun. We've done a lot of merch plays. And I think yeah. merch is we don't want to just like give away a ton of cool swag and not have it have a message. So our, our sort of merch drops always have some sort of tie into our mission. One of the more popular ones was the I don't work on Wall Street duffel bag, sort of a New York inside joke, maybe other cities, but anyone who works at like a major bank or hedge fund, they all have these Navy duffel bags that are like gym bags. And each one will have on the strap the name of the company that they work at. And it's it's like a joke in New York. If you yeah. see someone wearing that, they probably have a vest on. And so we made our own bags, but the, the, the strap said, I don't work on Wall Street. And then there was a patch that said, I invest on like. And again, that was kind of to paint the picture that forget what you knew or thought about what an investor should look like. Like we really believe everyone is and can be an investor. So here, everyone, everyone else can get a blue bag too. What was amazing about that is the the people we were sort of poking fun at loved it too. I think people like when something about them is recognized. And so it worked really well. It was really popular. But again, it sent that really strong signal that we're kind of busting out of these homogenous stereotypes at public. So yeah, there's we're always doing, I mean, every few months, there's a new one. We've got a couple of things cooking up. But I think it's a good way to just have sustained differentiation on the creative front, which people appreciate, I think. You know, people people appreciate cool marketing from whether it's their yeah. investing app or, you know, their favorite clothing brand. And it's also good PR in the way that when you do something different, obviously people are going to talk about it. And, you know, so like me, for example, I, I found out through the through the Michael Bolt, it was being shared everywhere, obviously. So I had to see it. And so that in itself is kind of a machine that acquires more customer. It's brand awareness. So it's kind of a, it's a very like, yeah, sustainable, sustainable? Is it a sustainable way of, of kind of growing acquisition? And I guess you'll, you'll keep on doing it. And back to the topic of virality is I, I read a really interesting Medium post by one of your co-founders about the K-Factor, which I really liked. Can you talk a little bit about the K-Factor and how you kind of use that for to kind of engineer virality into your marketing? Yeah, I think you can't really guarantee virality. It's yeah. kind of sort yeah. of like an inside joke of, you yeah. know, it, make it go viral. But I think one thing you can do is sort of reverse engineer success and then do all of the things that will set you in the best possible place to break through in the conversation. And that's something we do a lot at public. When we when we have something that we're a drop, for example, we think about, okay, what is the one thing that could happen at the end of this that would signal that like we did our jobs, that this was something that cut through the noise? An example of this is another drop we did was around the Airbnb IPO. And the kind of backstory with them is when they were very early stage, they needed some money. They actually produced these novelty cereal boxes around the U.S. presidential election. So they had Obama O's and Cap'n McCain's and they sold them for like $40 each, sold out immediately. I think they made like 300 or four, or sorry, 30 or $40,000 in a matter of days, paid off some debt. And then all these new investors were like, whoa, these, these people are doing it a little different. And they got some new money and kind of the rest is history. 
So ahead of the Airbnb IPO, we made our own cereal boxes with Brian Chesky on the front in a similar style. We gave them away. And, you know, as we were thinking of like, okay, how do we know this thing really got big? We were like, well, you know, Brian Chesky would tweet about it or real recognize it because it would be everywhere. And it happened, you know, the night before the IPO, he tweeted that he couldn't believe that like when he was uh, gluing cereal boxes with his co-founders that, you know, this would this would be happening. And that's not always going to happen, but you got to kind of aim high and then think about what is that one thing that that will signal that all the other things you want to happen will happen and then kind of reverse architect your way to that. But we we understand with the drops that like not everything's going to be Michael sure. Bolton. We got over a billion earned media impressions in a week. I mean, it was just insane. And so you understand sometimes things catch fire. A lot has to do with the timing and it's the content, it's the timing, it's a mix of things. So best thing you can set yourself up towards that big goal and understand that not every single one is going to pop through and be like the biggest story of the day. And that's okay. I think what was most interesting about the key factor for me is that, as you said, you're reverse engineering what works, but it also kind of tells you whether to invest more into it. And so in the post, he explains that if, for example, for every one customer you're getting two, which is kind of the definition of virality, then you know it's time to start investing more into paid media. But honestly, you don't you don't know that until you start measuring it properly. Uh, and that's what I that's why I liked it. And I think I recommend, you know, listeners to to listen to read the, the article and I'm gonna put it in the show notes because I think it's really relevant. Uh, if that's kind of approach you want to take, obviously, as you've said, it is true that virality, you know, we all dream of it, but it is hard to to engineer, and that that's true. So thank you for for telling us kind of going deep into those three marketing plays. I think that was really useful and really cool to hear kind of the, how it happens on the inside. I have one last question for you before we we end. And that is that um, on an interview, you also said that you you call yourself a sponge and that you you like to make sure you, you're up to date with trends. And as a marketer, like we just mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's super important to be up to date with trends and and to be curious. I don't usually ask the question like, what resources do you use to stay up to date? But I'm kind of curious because obviously you said you, you consume like a lot of uh, content or resources. Where where do you like to get, apart from, yeah, like employees and, and your family, like online resources, what, 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 are, what is the kind of stuff that you follow to kind of stay up to date? Totally. I, a few things. I, I think it's important to stay up to date with like current events and news. So I, I actually studied journalism in in college and was always like on the school newspaper. So just always really curious about what's outside of, you know, my little world that I live in, in my studio apartment, working in fintech marketing in New York City. And I think it's super important just for context and to be a more empathetic marketer. One mm -hmm. of the biggest skills marketers can have these days is reading the room. So understanding what's going on, who it's affecting in the context of how you're trying to communicate with people, I think is just super important. You see it all the time with like mistimed ad plays or tone deaf announcements. Like having, if you, the broader the context you have about everything around you, I just think the more empathetic you can be and the better you can be at your job as a marketer. And so definitely keeping up on the news. I also like... I really like looking back into history. And one of my favorite mm. kind of hobbies is I love Ken Burns documentaries. Yeah. As many, but it's almost the opposite of sort of the culture that exists now of just like head so deep into topics and explores all the nuances. And I do think history 
this separate thing. It's very much intertwined with the standing history helps you understand the present. So I, I love things like that. I'm also a huge music fan. So always absorbing that and, and frankly, like get some of my best ideas. So it's a little out of the box. Like we were talking about before, you know, I'm not necessarily following a bunch of Twitter threads on how to be a better marketer. I think those are great. (laughs) And it's amazing that people offer that up, but like I get ideas from places that have nothing to do with my job or our industry. That's just me personally, but I do think it helps if you're in marketing and just trying to be empathetic and relevant. Totally. I mean, we work in an industry where thinking outside of the box is a huge asset. So why not keep doing it? Right. So yeah, thank you so much, Katie, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure and I'm I'm really excited for our listeners to, to hear this episode. Thanks again. Thank you. This was so fun. If you want to sign up for public, just head to public.com. And also we're hiring and a lot of the roles are on yes. the marketing team. So you can check out public.com slash careers, see what's there. Um, always looking to hire people in the in the space who are interested in our mission. And thank you again. This was so much fun. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find all the information and show notes over at fintechmarketinghub.com and then click on podcast. We've also got a fintech marketing Slack community where you can meet fellow fintech marketers and founders, ask podcast guest questions ahead of a show and attend exclusive online events with industry experts. We'd love to see you in there, hear your feedback and learn about the challenges you're currently facing in your role. To join, head to fintechmarketinghub.com forward slash Slack. That's all for today. See you in the Slack.